0: work through and logistically deal with. Uh, So there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff been going on and we trust in the sovereignty of God in it all. We don't even though our flesh cries and our flesh is burdened and we're overrun by fear and doubt, we have to rest in the sufficiency of God's sovereignty. And I've got several questions um, in regard to that tonight. And it's it's interesting because I have had a, um, a, a short hiatus and I'm going to continue to take a hiatus personally on, um, on Facebook from my personal profile. I'm going to move that Uh, I'm going to move away from doing ministry stuff on my personal profile on Facebook, and just going to use the Pastor James H. Tippin's uh, page uh, that's been around for about ten years now. Actually, matter of fact, it's been around for ten years. So, you know, you'll you'll get those updates there, Grace Truth Church on Facebook, and everything will continue to get updates there but i 'm just going to move myself out of social media uh, interacting on a personal level. I just don't have the time, but for those of you you know who have contact information messenger i 'm still available it 's not that i 'm disappearing. I just don't have time uh, to to do all of that and to do what God 's called me to do. so I have to take uh, precautions to to make sure that i that I put priorities in order and most of all, you know my household, I need to make sure that i 'm not dividing my time between things in regard to my family. Uh, but we've got a lot of questions. I'm not going to have the questions printed up on the screen tonight. So for those of you who are popping in as the broadcast is going, you may have to back it up a little bit. I have not had a chance this week to organize them. So I'm just going to, I've got a long list that's come in and I'm going to go through and answer some of them. As I think they, they would be related to uh, you know something that would would help us out and would be good for the broadcast. And always please put your questions in the comments. If you have questions about uh, anything, even if you're watching this later, like months later, years later, and you have questions, please you know post in the comments or go to theology. Excuse me, I'm trying to give you the podcast there. Go to anchoringfaith.org and you can ask a question there or any of the other social media platforms, even on Twitter uh, and, and other places. We're happy to answer your questions. Questions uh, as 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 we're able. Well, let's talk tonight uh, about a few things. I have a lot of scriptural stuff and a lot of general things speaking to the conscience as well as sovereignty. And so, um, just for the sake of last last time we broadcast, I talk I talked about how we should understand and read the Bible and some. Basic biblical interpretation and biblical literacy, you know, things that we should understand. And this morning I started teaching in Genesis. I'm going to teach in Genesis for a couple of weeks. Then we're starting in 1 Timothy on the Lord's Day. Uh, then I'm going to be flipping back into between the New Testament, Old Testament throughout the next year. Or so uh, getting uh, more of a, a fuller appreciation and also the exposition of the Old Testament in light of the gospel. Um, and so tonight I'm picking some questions that have to do with certain aspects of Christian living, uh, aspects of fear, aspects of understanding how we should live. Because here, here's what happens. we We get into... Some of these uh I don't want to say ruts, but we get into some of these we get into some of these ditches, if you will uh we get into the ditch sometimes of always dealing with doctrine, always dealing with doctrine. when I say doctrine, the word literally means teaching but what what I mean by that is sometimes we get into the theological corners of the Christian faith, and we never really get into the ring we never get off the in the ditch back on the road uh, and eighty five percent or so of the instruction of the New Testament is how we relate to one another in the context of the gospel, how we live together, how we deal with conflict got a lot of questions about you know how to deal with conflict um, and and things of that nature so we have to have a a balance if if i can say that it's not necessarily a balance but we have to have the ability to be instructed in the bible not just that this is true concerning jesus but this is true from the mouth of jesus as a command to the apostles and so we've got to live we have a certain way in which we are to live according to the new testament and uh, there's a lot of people who don't like that and i don't understand that i don't understand how we can say that we glorify god but we ignore the instruction of the new testament how we say that we love God and we're defending truth, but we refuse. And let me tell you what it means to refuse. To refuse the instruction of the Scripture from any person is to slap Christ, is to spit on Him. Um, is to spurn him, is to punch him in the face and to mock him because he has commanded these things. Now, a lot of folks go, oh, that's very offensive. You better believe it's offensive. And if we feel offended when that is approached in that way, it's because we are in sin. We are in sin and our flesh has come against the very teaching of Christ himself. So I want us to, to really just relax a little bit tonight and let's talk about some of these things. And some of these questions are, are are back from the beginning of May. And so let's just get to them. The first question tonight is this: um, Scripture clearly teaches that God is sovereign in salvation. Also, God commands in the Bible repeatedly that people are to believe in Christ. And some examples are given there. Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, says to the crowd, "What?" Uh, uh, says to the crowd, "Who says what shall we do?" He says, "Believe in the Lord Jesus." So how am I supposed to address the issue or the tension between God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility? Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this from the onset. That question is, um, is one that to get into that language, to get into those words, requires a historical foundation. And I'm not going to be doing anything in that nature anymore. I'm not going to deal with historical uses of words or historical theology whatsoever unless it's specifically asked of me. What I want to do is to constantly deal with what is derived from Scripture. So in Peter's preaching at Pentecost, when they say, what shall we do? He's speaking to Jews. Okay, so when Jesus, I mean, when Peter is preaching to these Jews and he's preaching Moses, He's preaching the Old Testament promises of of salvation through Messiah, uh, Neshek, the Christ, the holy anointed one that comes from God. Um, which is the claim that Jesus continued to take. He is the one that came down from heaven. He is the one sent by the Father, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then he preaches this. Then he preaches the, the earthly ministry. He tells the story of the earthly ministry of Jesus. He tells the story that God the Son came into the world to save his people from their sins. He tells the story that the prophets and all that the Old Testament has pointed to has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He tells the story of God's righteousness. See, this is what evangelism is. It's tell the story of the Bible. Um, about the righteousness of God and the election of his people, satisfying his own righteousness through the Son whom he has given. Um, and all the little details that the scripture teaches in that. We, you know, we sometimes we can't get to them all. But in a nutshell, you know, Peter preached and preached and preached, and he preached all of this. He preached the prophets, he preached Christ, he showed the redemption that came through this, the sacrificial atonement and the substitution that Christ made for a particular people. This is what Peter preached. He, he didn't preach this idea of, you know, Jesus died, and if you believe he died for you, you get saved salvation. He didn't preach that. Peter preached salvation finished for the elect of God. Peter preached the fullness of the glory of God revealed in the creation of the world for the point of Christ becoming the, the, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the people of God. And so when we get into this idea of human responsibility and God's sovereignty, it's really, it's really a misapplication of comparisons. So you cannot put sovereignty in the net of what has man got to do with sovereignty. Man has nothing to do with sovereignty. Man has everything to do with being a sinner. Man is a recipient of God's grace and not just man, but sinners and not just human sinners, but elect human sinners, are the recipient of God's grace. God's grace being that salvific work and atoning work through Jesus Christ alone that was effectual unto redemption, unto forgiveness, and unto the promise fulfilled of eternal life for the people for for whom it was intended. And so when we we try to say, how do we deal with the tension between sovereignty and responsibility? Um, Here's the responsibility of all men, to submit to and obey God. So the gospel in proclamation is also a command. So the command is, believe in what I'm saying. So when Peter said to them, you need to change the way you're thinking and believe in what I just taught you. He says that. We use the English variation of this, repent. And believe the gospel, believe the story that I just said that's good, the good news that I just told you. And so, what he's telling the Jews to do when he preaches and they ask that question, he's basically saying, I just told you. I just told you what you can't do. I told you what God did. So, here is how we answer this question God has finished salvation, God has applied that salvation to his elect. God's elect are indeed going to receive eternal life because they cannot be lost. God's elect will, at the time God has allowed, according to John 3, as the Spirit wishes, will change the heart of these sinners so that they will know that they have been forgiven in the death of Christ and that they will know that there is eternal life through the promises and the power of God and so on and so forth. So the responsibility of all men are to obey God. Adam's responsibility was to obey God and to enjoy him and to flourish. But yet that was not God's purpose. That was not God's decree. God's decree was that his elect would enjoy him, his elect would submit to him, his elect would find, his elect would find the fulfillment of true life, the light of God's glory and the salvation that he finished in Christ Jesus. And only his elect are gonna find that. But it's not a fulfilled reality in its fullness. In other words, we don't have the glorification. We're still living in the sinful body. We still have this struggle in our mind, in our hearts, and with people and this world and sickness and all sorts of things. But we will one day be glorified to be like him. So we will share in the glory, we'll share in the magnificence of who Christ is and his in his glorified person. Um, not that we would become God, but we will become completely righteous because God will make us that way. Even though now our righteousness is not our own, it is Christ. And Christ will always be our righteousness. But that transformative reality of glorification, and the Bible doesn't tell us what it is. So if I say it's going to be like this, it's just a simile. It's just a speculative idealism that Tippins in his poetic (laughs) stupidity may decide to lay down on the paper of, of, of time. But ultimately we don't know what that's like, but we do know we will forever be sinless. We will forever be free from all issues related to sin. We will forever be freed from not just death and suffering, but we will be freed from the sinful nature that continually plagues us now. So the tension is really that all humanity, all things have responsibility for them to do that which God commands. But God has the responsibility of sovereignly causing his people to know what he has done on their behalf. So I could go on and on and on um and, and 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 continue to talk about that, but it, it's it's an age-old argument, it's an age-old dichotomy, if you will, where people are are constantly worried about, you know, how do we handle this, how do we answer that? So I think in a short uh for a short um answer to this in the sense of where some someone you may be talking to someone. Well, the Bible commands, why would God command that which can't be done? Because He's God and He expects it. Um, you know, God has done the work of redemption sovereignly and that work of redemption will be granted in repentance by the Spirit to those for whom it applies as the Spirit desires and wishes when He wishes. And when they are granted that, they are given the gift of faith to believe in the proclamation and also the command of God and they will believe because God gives them faith to believe. And uh, the faith is the fruit of of the finished work of Christ and the regeneration of the new birth of the Holy Spirit. Faith is the result of that. And that's what the, you know, for those of you who have followed in our John series, if you go and find on the org, you can see the, um, or sermon audio, you can see you know, around chapters 1, 2, and 3, you can see chapter 3 where we teach about uh, regeneration, and so I'd really encourage you if you have those questions um, to you know to seek that out and to read the scripture yourself, and then look at. And, and if you want to know my thoughts and how I exegete that, you can certainly do that. Uh, the next question we have tonight, question number two, is you know what is gossip? What is gossip? Well, gossip is defined in this way. Peter says that it's murder. Um, the scripture talks about it being the heart of pride, the heart of arrogance, the heart of, uh, it, it comes from a heart of, of, of enjoying talking about someone else. And, and here's how we should define gossip because gossip is non-edifying. Okay, so if one of you, if, if, some of, if some of us have a conversation, let's say you and I have a conversation, and it's a pleasant conversation, and you share something that's great, and you say, man, this is just great, the Lord has shown me this, and the Lord has shown me that, and I'm, I'm joyful, etc." and then in another conversation I have with another person, and I don't even mention your name, and I say, yeah, I spoke with a sister or brother today, and they were rejoicing about the Word of God teaching this. Isn't that great? Um, that's not gossip. But it could be gossip if I said, oh, yeah, so-and-so, they were going through a lot of problems, and then they said this, and then the Word of God taught them this. If I've done that without your presence or your permission, I've gossiped. Um, Let's just say something bad has happened. Uh, And this is one of the things that, you know, pastor, elders have to really pay close attention. We don't get to just share and talk freely uh, because the congregation— and they, they confide in us. So we have to go to our grave with a lot of information concerning people. And if we share that stuff, even in theory, if we share that stuff even without name, we are, we are uh, actually sinning against God and against the person who told us these things in confidence. So gossip then should be understood as a way of talking about a person or in relation to a person that's non-edifying or that could be misrepresented. Um, even if it's true. Gossip is not lying. That's false witness. Bearing false witness is not gossip. Gossip is telling the truth about someone. And in an attempt to not edify them. So anything that we say about anyone that is not edified, for example, look at the memes during election time, and we talk trash about politicians. That's gossip. And not only that, it's actually murder, according to what the Scripture says. It, 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 and, and then, so should we ever do it in the context of the kingdom of heaven? Should we ever talk trash about people? Should we ever tell the truth negatively? Because here's, what is the point? What's the point when we say something? Well, I've got to keep it real. You don't have to keep it real. You need to shut your mouth. Um, and, and, you know, if I were in my flesh, I would shut it for you. <laughs> that kind of thing. That's what my, you know, that's what grandparents used to say. If you boy, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you. My bad, my dad used to always have this little colloquialism. He'd say, don't let your mouth write a check that your butt cannot cash. And never really understood that until I had my own kids. But you know, that's what we do. We overflow with the mouth. And Jesus says it this way, is that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you can tell where the heart of someone is. You can tell if the person is led by the Spirit of God based on how they communicate, based on how they talk about problems, based on how they communicate with others because of their fears or concerns. Um, And if it's always negative, and it's always fear, and it's always fear-mongering, and it's always these things, and it's always negative about other people and what they're not doing and how they're wrong and all this other kind of stuff, there's no room for reconciliation. The Spirit of God is not in that discussion, and it is absolutely murderous 100% of the time. There's no exception whatsoever in any situation, any circumstance, any time in the history of humanity, from the very beginning breath of Adam to the very last breath before the trumpet call to glory, it is always murder, and we will be held accountable for every word that comes out of our mouth. I don't know what that means, because we're not going to be condemned, but I think there is a level on which we will have a greater joy knowing that we have put away the flesh and put away sin. I mean, you think about it, if I say something because I'm frustrated or angry or that I want to prove a point, or I think I'm some kind of a divine inspired, uh, you know, soldier for the Lord, and I I come out and I say something negative against someone, and then the Bible and all of its wisdom, the Word of God and all of the wisdom there teaches how to handle it, and the people handle the problem, and then I've spread all of this garbage, guess what? I have to unspread all the garbage and say, I'm the wicked murderer. I'm the one who is in sin. But do we typically do that? No, because our pride prohibits us to doing that. So we divorce ourselves from the very relationships that God has established for us. Uh, And that's not just in the church. That's anywhere. Gossip is always saying things about someone else that does not edify them to others. Um, that's why a lot of prayer meetings are just gossips. <laughs> you know, well pray for brother James, you know, he, he 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 lost his temper last week and he punched his wall and he kicked his dog and he threw out his wife's flowers. I mean you see what I'm saying? There's no you can't escape it. You can't get away from it. But we're all so inclined to do it. We we find ourselves looking at the people magazines on the um uh the people magazines on the on the end caps of the of the of the cash registers and the the tabloids and and we just enjoy that kind of stuff as humanity, but we don't realize it until long after it's over that we've engaged in it. And here's another way that gossip is actual actuated is that when we listen to it, hey, Pash, I want to tell you about so and so. You better not, you better not tell me about so and so. I don't want to hear about so and so. Now there is a sense in which people are trying to get. Uh, you know, to get wisdom. But you know what, beloved, most of the time we can gain wisdom on a situation from the biblical point of view of things without even disclosing any details whatsoever about the circumstance. How do I deal with a person who is doing this? Or how do I deal with a person who is talking about me? How do I deal for a person who stole from me? How do I deal with a person? How do I deal with this conflict? How do I deal with Generally, uh, conflict, no matter what kind of conflict it is, the scripture teaches us what to do. And one of the biggest things that we do is we never, ever, ever speak evil of anyone, even if it is true that they are evil. Wow, I didn't mean to say that much in the context of gossip, but beloved, I had five people ask me about gossip for just in the last two weeks. So I figured I better answer it. Uh, the next question, question number three is, are unbelievers part of the church? Now, this is a little switchy here because the word church in and of itself means um, institution. The word church comes from the word Kirk, and I can share the etymology all the way back, um, uh, you know, for centuries that the word ecclesia and the word church are not the same words. The word church means institutional organization. The word gathering or assembly is a group of people, whether they are worshiping Jesus, whether they're voting, whether they're watching a ball game. The word ecclesia means assembly. So if you go to a football game, that is an ecclesia. That's the Greek word for ecclesia. Um, In the New Testament, it uses it there, uh, you know, about the proconsul. It uses it there in Ephesus, the idea of they all church, they all ecclesiated um, together, you know, almost into a riot. So it's not exclusively meaning believers. So when we say the word church, we're not talking about believers. We're talking about the gathering that believers do. And amongst that gather, gathering, the New Testament—you understand—it was not exclusive. Membership is exclusive, but the gathering is not exclusive. Covenant is exclusive, but the gathering is not exclusive. We can have friends, but we only have one spouse, you know. And so, in the New Testament, it's very clear there that the gatherings of the church in, comprise people who are curious as to what's going on, people who are greedy and trying to get a handout, people who are trying to malign and stir up trouble, people who are genuinely believers, people who are immature, people who are wise, people who are all in between, uh, people of all walks of life, rich people and influent people and powerful people and weak people and broken people and and, and, and mentally ill people. Um, And everywhere you look in the New Testament, we see a wide view of people who gather together. And then we see the religious coming, thinking they're pretty good. And we see people who say that they're in Christ, but yet after a while you realize well their their testimony's not quite there something's odd or maybe you come to find out they don't even believe the gospel but ultimately the church is always going to be comprised the gatherings are always going to be comprised of all sorts of different types of people who in some shape or form desire some type of connectivity with the gospel message being preached from the pulpit so the question, like I answered this morning, what is a gospel church? Well, a gospel church is where there are at least two or more people who are truly in the faith gathering under the under the oversight and the teaching of elders who preach the true gospel of free and sovereign grace, and that is the assembly. And that is going to always be the only way we can define the assembly whatsoever until we get to the Hebrews 12 assembly, which is the pure assembly of the festival gatherings of the angels and the saints of all time together ultimately and finally forever, never to cease worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ together. So unbelievers are going to be part of the church. And when we recognize them, we have the clear and and, and solid instruction of the Bible on how to do it. Pastor elders are the only ones in the body who are author, authorized to deal with that type of discipline. And everybody else has to hush um, and And deal with with things accordingly, uh, whether it be infidelity, whether it be you know doctrinal issues, whether it just be absolute being a knucklehead and not doing that which the Bible calls. You realize whether you have a doctrinal error or a behavior error it 's equally evil in the eyes of the New Testament apostles because they say both of those things are immediate and ultimate grounds when they become divisive and are either our behavior or our or error. They are grounds for excommunication, and that is a public event whereby we tell people not that you can't come to the assembly. The assembly is a public meeting, but that the body, that the church of Christ can no longer have anything to do with you whatsoever. They can't feed you. They can't pray for you. They can't talk to you. They can't meet with you. They cannot have life with you because it is a cancer that eats the church. So there's a lot there, and ecclesiology is something that I think is very waning. Um, People don't understand it people have decided that they want to be sort of like Israel. Listen, folks, the nation of Israel, <laughs> people like to make parallels, but they're just ignorant as a rock when it comes to that kind of stuff and dumb as a hammer, as I like to say. Uh, and that's what we do. We create our own ideas. But, you know, even in the Old Testament, Israel was a majority unbelievers and a and small remnant. So even in the local assembly of saints, you're going to have a remnant of believers that throughout time we're going to see an ebb and flow of people come in and out of the – and out of the faith i see it all the time i mean almost 23 years now i've been in the ministry and i've seen more people come into the fold and profess the gospel and profess to want to be intimate but then after a month a year or ten years they just fly out because something rubs them the wrong way and they're not willing to submit to the word of god in, in in correction or intimacy and so you're going to have that you're going to have that good question number four back to the sovereignty issue question number four says when thinking of sovereignty How deep does this go? Am I able to trust God's promises and God's power in all things? What about if I make the wrong choice in life? Now, this is a good. This is a good question. Now, we talked a little bit about it this morning in Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, um, and we could go to Isaiah. We could go to the Psalms. We could look and, and see all sorts of things in the context of the prophets, where God spoke through the prophets and said, "Hey, look, uh, my ways. I'll always do what I want. I, I'm the, there's God is in the heavens. He does as He pleases. Uh, he causes this and that. What is what does Isaiah say? God says through Isaiah that He causes a bird to fly over here and a man to move over." here. He does all that he wishes. The scripture teaches continually that God is in control of all things. I mean, you look at the first century. Now, you take the first century as a news report. Uh, excuse me, not the first century. You take the gospel account as a news report. Take the book of Acts. Take the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Put them together. Get the real historicity of that um, as it's done. You know, And people have tried. They put it on the silver screen. Now, just paint this picture in your own mind for a second. <laughs> Here is this man who disappeared, and they saw him for a little bit when he was 12, and then they see him again for for a long, long time. And all of a sudden, this other man comes out. They didn't see for a while. He's preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Change the way you're thinking and believe in the gospel, the good news of Messiah, the Lamb of God. And you see all this turmoil. you see the religious leaders. You see people being separated from their families. You see all this stuff. You see the political powers of Rome starting. And it, now, put it in the news. Put it in the BBC. Put it in Al Jazeera. Put it on CNN or Fox or whatever. And you see it. What would we think? Oh, good Lord, help us! Oh, my goodness, look what's going on in the Middle East. Oh, my gosh, look what's happening there. See, this all took place in Palestine. Palestine is the whole area in which it took Asia Minor, Palestine specifically. And we would have been freaked out. And the people of that day were all freaked out. Everything was freaked out. Everybody was just going insane, worried. Now imagine if they had had all the information all the time being reported to them constantly. Wow, what would it be like? It'd be like we are today. We're scared to death of everything. We have conditioned ourselves to not believe in the sovereignty of God. We've conditioned ourselves into being self-sufficient in our fears, self-sufficient in our knowledge and wisdom, self-sufficient, while all the while praising God for His sovereignty, praising God. And this is what we do. We come to the place of literally giving into our flesh, thinking that we're actually believing in the Lord um, and His power, but ultimately we're not. We're just giving into the culture around us. But yet all through that, I mean, there's never going to be a time as volatile as the days of Jesus' ministry, those four years that he was on the earth, politically, uh, spiritually, religiously at all. You may think it's bad in some places, but it's not. There's never going to be a time that's going to be more volatile than it was then on the, the social sphere, the political sphere, and the spiritual sphere, and religious sphere. Look at the Pharisees. Look at Rome and all of that. And they were killing people on crosses. And then they kill this man who was exonerated by Pilate because it was better to kill him than for the relationship between the Jews and Rome to start butting heads. So they kill him. Imagine seeing the news of this and hearing him. Oh, the outrage. Oh, my goodness, we're going to go over there. Oh, president, we're going to write letters to our congressman. We've got to do something about this. But what does the scripture teach us? What do the apostles say? What does Jesus say? I lay down my life. When I'm ready. And I take it up again. What did he tell Pilate? <laughs> you, you have no power over me, Pilate. And he didn't say it in a haughty way like I'm just laughing. I just it makes me giggle in a sense. Don't you know I have the power to, to set you free or to or to take your life? And Jesus says, You don't have any power over me. You have no power. You can't do anything. All this stuff that you think is happening, none of it is happening outside my Father's power and purpose and providence. It is all my father's doing in his decree, and I will lay down my life when the time comes, and I alone will take it up again. You can't kill me until I'm ready to lay my life down for my people. Things aren't as bad right now, yet we all live as though things are at the end of the line. I I yelled out the other day, I feel like Chicken Little. That's exactly what I, I said that out loud. And I was not talking to anyone. I was not near anyone. I was just walking, minding my own business. And I was going through my brain and all this weirdness that I have in my brain. And I, I literally just was having these arguments with myself. And I, I role play like I'm talking to somebody or whatever. And then it just, I was overcome with anxiety. And I just yelled out, I felt like Chicken Little. The sky's falling. Everything's terrible. You know, the world is coming to an end. And in a, in a humorous sense, but also in a very somber way, the Spirit of God reminded me of what the Scripture taught, teaches, is that God is sovereignty. God is absolutely sovereign, and His sovereignty rules every aspect of my day. You know, wow, the computer didn't reboot. Goodness, theology on calls got to go. Listen, God's sovereign over that. I get a piece of dirt in my eye, God's sovereign over that. I twist my ankle all up, and it swells up this big, and I can't walk for a week. God is sovereign over that. God is sovereign over everything so that in everything and that means everything and specifically the bad things I am able to rest and there's one prescription that gives us the promise of that joy and that is to know the gospel and stay connected with those who know the gospel no matter what and God's prescribed God's prescribed remedy for all this fear and to see his sovereignty is to hold fast in the midst of the greatest storms. I mean, you look at the imagery that comes out of just seeing how the disciples slept. I mean, the disciples were upset that Jesus was sleeping in the midst of the storm on the sea, remember? And, and they were like, we're just going to perish. And he stands up and he's like, shh, and the whole storm stops. <laughs> you know, my grandmother used to sing a song, I Know the Master of the Wind. I Know the Maker of the Waves or something of that nature. It's a powerful, powerful song uh, because it's, it's true we do know the maker of the waves. We do know the one who ordered the cosmos in order to provide the perfect place to grow a human being who are his elect that he may multiply them on the earth even through reprobate people God's elect are born. I want you to think about that for a second. Election is not a genealogical reality. Election is a sovereign reality of grace alone. And it is freely given as God sees fit. So many of the elect are born through reprobate homes. And many of the elect's children may be reprobate. But God multiplies his glory in the manifestation of the gospel and bringing his people to the, to the truth and the, of the cross of Christ and to the truth of the good news of his redemptive promises. And nothing can stop him. So, if the whole world, hurricanes included, see, there's two storm systems that are out there. I'm just, you don't know. One day I'll take a picture of what I'm looking at right now, which has got some cameras and some screens, about four screens here. And I'll show you that one of them during the day uh, has a National Hurricane Center map on it. I I just, you know. But even in the hurricanes, um, God is bringing all things under his feet so that his elect may come to know the knowledge of him. And we can rest in that. What's the worst that happens? We lose our lives and stand before our king? It's really not that bad, guys. It really is skipping all of the playtime and getting right to the real. It's skipping the shadow and going straight to the promise. So, yeah, if we make wrong choices, <laughs> I pray that we grow in wisdom. But, beloved, we don't get to dictate how God does his promises based on the choices we make. God's promises are yea and amen, period without James even in the equation, without my decisions even being part of the makeup. It's not even in the jar. Everything that I do and everything that I am and everything that I'm ever going to be is relative to what God has already done and accomplished and decreed for me. So no matter which way I'm going or which way you're going, God's always going to bring us to the same place if we belong to Him. And if we don't, He'll bring them to the same place too. Question number five. How can my conscience, how can my conscience be my guide if I'm not supposed to listen to my heart or mind? Well, let me tell you something, beloved. The only place we see the conscience being an issue um, is when someone thinks a practice may or may not be right for them. All right? We pay attention to them. I think I put this on Facebook a couple of weeks ago when this question was asked of me. A co- our conscience, what we think and how we feel sometimes, our emotions, let's just use conscience as a emo- because conscience is emotion. We feel something because of something we think and vice versa that causes think- thinking. And our conscience and our emotions are like a warning light on a car. I have a, a 2006 Tahoe and the check engine light is on permanently. I've taken it in. My mechanic says, it's a $700 part that's probably going to fail again. It's an electrical problem with this particular year. Nothing's wrong. It's not running lean. Everything is fine. Um, You want me to replace it or not? No, I don't. I don't want to spend the money on something that's not necessary. But then I started thinking, well, what happens when something is wrong? And the light doesn't come on again. He says, well, if it gets any worse, it'll start blinking. (laughs) You know, whatever. Uh, So we pay attention to the warning lights. We pay attention to the blinkers on the cars in front of us. And sometimes people will put a blinker on and never turn. It's just blinking, 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 blinking. Well, the emotions in in our thoughts, in our mind, in our conscience, we pay attention to them, but we arrest them. We take them and go, okay, here's a picture of what I'm thinking, feeling snapshot screenshot if you will now let's take it and let's put it in front of the scripture let's put it in front of the scripture what am i feeling i'm feeling a burden what does the scripture say when we're feeling a burden we rest in christ and we pray for that burden we ask we receive not because we ask not that's some james stuff we're going to get into in a couple of months on midweek so we feel burdened we don't act in any other way except to pray oh we don't know what to do we have, we have no wisdom. What does James say? We ask, and God gives without reproach, freely to all who ask, but we have to ask in faith. We don't get the immediate answer. So what do we do in the meantime? Oh, no, we do exactly what God has commanded for us to do. We maintain a steadfastness in the steadfastness of Christ, the one who stands forever for us. Like in Stephen, he looks up and he sees Jesus in the right hand of majesty standing on his behalf, standing to receive him. And we hold fast to the, to the command to not forsake the assembly we gather together with the saints as we're able to do and we come to rest in the perfection of what god has promised in the certainty of what god has promised we're fearful why would you fear what is fear except a lack of faith in knowing that god will establish what he's promised for us so we rest we pray we ask others to pray with us we learn and most importantly we serve the body we serve the body and we submit to those who are keep, keep, keeping a watch over our souls because they will help God and direct us in these ways and in these places of great turmoil so that our conscience may be a guide to not violate on certain aspects. But if you will notice when Paul talks about the conscience, he says that there are people with weak consciences and that we should, as mature believers, especially in Romans, not flaunt our liberty. We're free and we're not worried about these things anymore, but some people are. And these are always in these, you know, do I do this, do I do that, do I do the other? Um, And what does the Scripture say? That we who are more mature, who have the liberty, should be careful not to offend our weaker brothers and sisters. But at the same time, we don't let them stay in that weak place. We press them. We say, listen, I hear what you're saying and I understand. And you don't have to. However, you can't live in fear of this because God has established this in his word. God has promised this in his word. And beloved, everything fits in that prescription. Everything fits in that scaffolding. Everything fits in those promises. God is able to do it. God is able to do it. Sometimes our, we're, our, our faith is weak and our faith is strong. And when our faith is weak, our conscience will dictate to us where we do, how we do life and the decisions we make. And, and we have this fight or f- flight idea. And some of us want to fight and some of us want to fly. And we've got to make sure that we're resting and standing on the foundation of Christ. And there's nothing that I can say to you to cause you to do that. It has to be the Spirit of God. Some people don't want to hear this kind of counsel from me because (laughs) they just think it's ridiculous. Well, that's fine, but I'm telling you, the Scripture says this. And when God shows you, you won't see that it's ridiculous. It's not my ideas. It's the Word of God. It's what Scripture would teach us. Question number six. Question number six, what does it mean to spurn the Son of God? How do we spurn Christ? Well, this is a loaded question, and I came up with a conversation that I had and and some things that I've said over the last few months. But ultimately, there's one major way in Hebrews. um, It talks about spurning the Son of God. And if we look at that text, uh, I'm just going to pull it up on my screen so I I can see a little bit better. Uh, but if we pull up that text in Hebrews, <clears throat> the context there is talking about. Mm, excuse me, is is talking about in Hebrews ten? I've got all sorts of windows open here. I do apologize. I, I'm sorry I wasn't able to get these questions posted ahead of time, but uh, so that you could see them. But in Hebrews chapter ten, uh, Paul is writing about this covenant. And he's talking about how you know the, the the finished work of Christ as a high priest is 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 done. That that salvation is finished. That there is no sacrifice for sin whatsoever. And if you start in verse nineteen um, of chapter ten of Hebrews, you'll see this incredible, incredible exposition of of confidence, of assurance, of solidity, of foundation the promise of God for his people to be always secure in the finished work of Christ. And so he reiterates the gospel, and he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he gives a command there, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts clean, our consciences clean before God from an evil conscience in our bodies washed with pure water. This is the, the, the regenerative idea of, of, of having the liberty to stand in the presence of God without fear and guilt and shame and condemnation because Christ's blood has satisfied the wrath of God for his people. So we don't cower before God. We stand before God in his presence clean. And then in verse 24, and then he says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't know what the Bible says, as James would say, and then do something else. Don't ask for wisdom. We have wisdom, who is Jesus Christ. So let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we stand. Our wavering is not how close we are to God. Uh, I mean, that's what, you know, we waver because we think, oh, I'm doing it wrong, I'm living wrong, or Whatever. But we don't waver because the work of Christ, Christ has brought us near to him. We can't get away. He has grabbed hold of us and we can't get away because he who promised is faithful. Verse 24 of chapter 10, it says, and let us consider, let us always be thinking how we can stir each other up to love and to the service of the church. That's what the good works are there. And not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but always encouraging one another more and more and more and more and more and more until the day of Jesus Christ. So our number one goal as Christians is to be encouraging each other to serve other believers and to put away our flesh and our needs because if we're serving, somebody else will be serving us. You see what I'm saying? And so in that, in verse 26, there's this warning passage, and and we've just finished Hebrews a couple of months back. But it says, for if we go on deliberately sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So what's he doing? He's he's still talking about his context there. He gave some instruction. He gave some warnings. He gave some encouragement and admonishment to the body, to the believers. And then he goes on to give, in a sense, not talking to believers, but talking about those who are feeling like they just need to give up and throw their hands up and walk away from the body of Christ. I'm gonna tell you now. This is the context here, because the heat that's on them is pressed by men, humanity, the peers, the family, the others, continually pressed there, and they're willing to walk away from the very nature of what Christ has done to the point that they're willing to say, "There's got." To, because what's the context of them wanting to walk away from the body? They'd rather go back into Judaism. you got to understand that now. They're talking about leaving the Christian faith and, and the, the saints and going back into the practice of sacrificing at the temple because it would take the heat off of them. This isn't, this isn't a complete parallel for every time somebody gets upset and leaves the church now. This is specifically in this context. So if we know the truth and we continue to not rest in the truth, we don't believe. And so, all we have is a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, that's not for us. That's for what? That's for unbelievers. And that's more specifically for reprobate people. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy, just on the evidence of two or three. How much worse punishment, then, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Don't we know? Paul says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And it says, The Lord will judge his people. And he remarks in verse 31, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then he says, Don't give up. Don't don't give up. So in this question now, that's where we see spurning the Son of God. We see that, uh, that idea of, of spurning the Son of God. And spurning the Son of God is to shrink back into the law after being taught grace. That's the the purest way to answer that question but there is also a way we spurn the Lord and that once he also teaches us the remedy for other things we just go ah oh, there's got to be another way I'll handle this on my own now it's not the same manner it's not with the same severity it's definitely not an eternal issue but I like to say it that way because what does James say in James chapter one James says that you know anyone needs wisdom just ask and God who gives freely to all um, gives so without saying, oh, here you go, dummy. He gives it freely without repro- reproach. I, I preached that a couple of weeks ago, midweek. And in doing so, he says, but it, there's a condition in which you can receive wisdom. you got to receive wisdom by faith, knowing that God will grant that wisdom. So part of that granting wisdom is to be patient, waiting on the Lord to resolve whatever it is we need wisdom for. Waiting on the Lord's word and then the collaboration around the word and prayerfully without fear, but... Prayerfully in faith to rest on what God has promised. So this is what this is. This is part of Christian living. This is what shepherds are supposed to be doing. This is why preaching is so important. It's, you know, we, I think we got the doctrines right. I think we keep on pressing the gospel. We always preach the gospel of Christ. We always preach the cross. We always remind each other every single moment as we're able. That the gospel is this, and his name is Jesus, and we are satisfactory to the Father because Christ has taken away our sins. But we don't then forget about the therefores. Then we walk into the therefores. And sometimes when we are lacking wisdom, and we know what the Scripture says, James says, but we don't do it, we're like, a, we're like a, uh, being tossed to and fro like a wave in the sea. And I think that that, in a sense, is a way of spurning the Son of God. I think there's a sense in spurning the Son of God when we treat brothers and sisters, when we treat our enemies, when we treat our neighbors in a hateful way, when we gossip. Because what we do is we say, well, this is the example of Christ, but I don't have to follow it. I don't have to follow it. And, and we know that's not true. We don't we don't walk in that way. We, we desire to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so that's what we do, and we do so by faith, knowing that no matter how well or not well we walk, it does not change our relationship with the Father who purchased us through the blood of Jesus, and our salvation is complete. But when we are together, when we learn the full counsel of God's Word, which is the gospel and living together as gospel recipients, uh, when we learn the full counsel of God's Word, we begin to strive out of worship and gratitude. Uh, because of what God has done for us. And then our joy is completed because we're no longer being snatched around. We're solid. We stand solidly um, on the truth who is Jesus Christ. Question number seven. Isn't simple faith just saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Isn't that all that is required for salvation? Growing up as a child, I was taught that all you had to do was know that Jesus was the way. Well, That sounds really interesting, but you've got to understand something, that evangelism is the teaching of the story of Jesus, which is to teach the promise of God for salvation, which is to go into the Jewish history. You see, in in John chapter 4, when Jesus was was talking to the woman at Sychar, let me just pull it up. Uh, uh, John chapter 4, when Jesus was talking to the woman at Sychar, he... um, you know, she she was around Jewish tradition. She, she ha- had grown up learning these things. She claimed Jacob as her own spiritual father. But Jesus says something extremely interesting here when he's talking to her. He says that, don't you know that um, salvation is of the Jews? And you have to forgive me, guys. I, I'm still dealing with these glasses, so I'm having a hard time seeing certain words in certain places. Uh Salvation is from the Jews, and, you know, she was like, what? Yeah, our father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. So, in other words, the story of Jesus deals with the story of Abraham, deals with Moses, deals with creation. The story of Jesus and the redemptive plan of God and the purposes of God um, go all the way back. So, we have to, in a general sense, teach the story of Jesus from start to finish, which includes who he is, Um, And that's why we don't use the law as an evangelistic tool. We use the law as a relationship to the righteousness who is Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 3 teaches us. We don't say that God gives us righteousness um, and and makes us righteous. We say that God credits the righteousness of Jesus to our account. And so, yeah, in in a, you know, mystical, not mystical, in a misty sense. In other words, you just, the aroma, in an aroma of the gospel. Faith is knowing Christ is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But no one is born again through that type of just very vague, you got to believe in Jesus. Well, what does it mean to believe? It means to know him. Well, what does it mean to know him? That means you got to know something about him. Well, how do we know something about him? Somebody's got to tell you, or you got to read it for yourself. You have to learn who Jesus is. So there's not a magic word in the Bible. There's not a magic phrase. There's not a magic road of some kind of passages that if we do, then poof, people can come to know the faith. We teach the faith. We teach the faith. And some people will come along and say, you know what, I do do believe. I believe. And they may not have been born again yet, but they're still engaged in the learning of the word. And so we as the shepherds and as the saints, we continue to teach and encourage and disciple. And then all of a sudden one day that person may go, wow, I see this gospel so beautifully. I've been born again today, or they may not even know that phrase. You know, they may not know, but years later, they can they can say, you know, I I remember the time, I remember the season of life, or I remember the opportunity where that sort of came to light for me. You know, and we don't have a love affair with the idolatry of salvation experiences. Uh, we should not, as the church, we we don't need to have an Americanized, uh, you know, uh, idol of uh, when were you saved. I mean, not very few people know that. Um. Unless you come out of a very clear false gospel into the truth. Some people who just grew up reading the Bible, some people who just, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who are in sovereign grace churches who are not born again, and all of a sudden they become born again um, because the Spirit of God causes them to know Christ. And so that is, you know, faith is knowing Christ. Faith is knowing who Christ is according to the Bible. Faith is knowing and understanding, and most importantly, resting, sitting still on the foundation of the prophets and the foundation of the apostles as, and the foundation of the Father as he testifies to the Son concerning the salvation of his people. And um, it, it's a story to be heard, and it's a story to be learned, and it's a story to be told, but it is a salvation that is the power of God, and he alone can grant that salvation. He alone can grant Uh, He alone has finished the salvation. He alone can grant that faith for his people to believe in what he has done. i got three or four more questions. I don't have a whole lot of time here, but I do have this question. Um, And uh, it says, I know that the Bible is the primary means by which we learn and understand and grow as Christians. But in the past, I've anticipated, I've appreciated having a systematic theology to outline and assist in understanding certain concepts and doctrines. Is there such a tool in understanding sovereign grace theology? And I'm just going to say this because, you know, I get, I get a lot of flack sometimes for, and for two sides of the same coin. I get a lot of flack for the don't read study Bibles, don't read commentaries, don't worry about historical theology, don't worry about traditions, don't worry about theologians, don't worry about systematic. Read your Bible. And then I get on the other side of the flack of that, uh, on the other side of that coin, I get flacked by saying, um, you know, we, we need to, you know, we can glean something from other people's experiences, because we can. But ultimately, we need to understand this. Like some people would say, well, we got to have the doctrine of the Trinity. No, we don't. The doctrine of the Trinity, the teaching of the triune God is in the Bible. We don't need that systematized outline in order to understand that. And what what has happened is people have come to learn Trinitarian theology, but they don't know the Bible. So they can't show anybody in the Bible what's what. They can't say, well, here I see the Son speaking, and here I see the Father speaking, and here I see the Spirit moving. Here I see Jesus calling himself God. Here the, the the best thing that we should do as we read the Bible is say, you know what? Jesus is God, and he is the Son, and the Father is God, and he is the Father, and and, and the Spirit is God, and he is the Spirit. Wow, there are three persons. There are three personalities. There are three different Persons going on here who are all God, and the Bible says that God is one. You know, so we don't need to exterminate the simple teaching of the Scripture by defining things in such a way and systematize. Now they're beneficial. So the answer to that is no. I don't think there are helpful um, system, you know, systemized outlines to better understand the concepts and doctrines in sovereign grace theology. Here's how I think the local church needs to establish this. I think the elders of the church need to write. Little paragraphs and little papers um, that relate to their teaching as the occasion comes up. For example, we're writing some little papers on on, on what's known historically, and that history is not very long. But what's known historically as a well meant offer and that verbiage and the common grace and progressive sanctification and the love of God. So we're dealing with these four things and we're going to write them down and we're going to deliver them to our church and say, here's what the Bible says concerning these things and here's what the words are and here's where we think is the wise way in which we should understand the use of these things and here's the heresy behind it and here's ABC or whatever. You know, whatever it might mean depending on what we're talking about. And then as we are alive today, and those pastor shepherds and other brothers and sisters who are also able to write and communicate, I think we can learn better from one another so that when the next generation comes along, they too can also learn. I don't think we need to solidify, bind, and, and, and continue to uphold um, dead men's stuff to the point that we forsake the very learning through the Bible and by the Spirit, because God does not teach us himself through systematic theology. He does not do it. And you can argue that with me all you want, but I can sit you down and give you a test, and I, you will fail it. If you think you've learned Christ through systematic, systematic theology, uh, I can prove to you that you've failed it. Um, and that, and, and the reason for that is you won't have a testimony, a biblical testimony of who Christ is in this way. Uh, from the text and the context of Scripture, you just won't have it. You might have a proof text or six, but you won't have an experiential testimony of those things. So, that is that is where uh, that is how I want to answer that question. Now, do I love systematization? Yes. Do I love theology, beloved? I've got books. I'm telling you, I got books. I got books stacked up. I I couldn't show you, but I got books everywhere, um, and I'm throwing away books by the dozens. And people, oh, let me have them. You don't want them. I don't want you to have them. I don't want you to have them. I just want to chuck them and get rid of them Um, because the books that I'm discarding have no use for the believer (laughs) whatsoever. I promise you. I'm tired of the research. I'm tired of the apologetics. I'm tired of the, uh, uh, you know, of coming to the table and always saying, oh, I can look that up for you. I can tell you what so and so said back in 1822 or 1519 or what. I don't. I don't want to deal with that anymore i want to shepherd the flock that is among me and i want to live the rest of my life in unity correcting admonishing encouraging and growing in grace and the knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ and loving one another and dealing with all of the things that god has put on my plate patiently by his power and his mercy so that god will continue to call his elect sheep to himself and make them know make known to them his glorious grace, that they may worship together as one people. So that is my desire. Uh, and, you know, most of the time when people get older, they move more into the academic way of things. But, beloved, I started out that way, and I'm getting out of it. I'm getting out of it because I see it as a as a huge hindrance and stumbling block um, in the context of uh you know, of of Christian growth because people rely on it too much. It becomes a hobby horse rather than a holy worship time. And uh, <laughs> don't quote me on that. Anyway, well, beloved, that's all the time I have for today. Uh, I see a lot of posting going on, and if you've asked a question, I will put it first for next week. I do apologize, but thank you guys for being here. I've missed you all. Please let me know how I can love you and pray for you. Also, share this video with someone that you think it might be beneficial, and if there's any specific topics or doctrines that you think would be good for uh, some other type of promotions uh, or publications or publishings, that's the word I was looking for, we're happy to do that as well, Um, but until then, we will see you guys on Wednesday. We love you. And hit that like button while you're there if you're on YouTube. God bless.